If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. So obviously this is a situation that uh, involves a public health component uh, and, and the need for a firm response, but also the economic side of things and the need for a firm response to ensure that we're doing what we can uh, to help Canadians, help businesses uh, get through these really challenging times. So we've seen some initial steps uh, from the federal government uh, in terms of uh, what we can do, uh, at least in the short term. Uh, to help Canadians get through this, but we're going to have to do a lot more. And what does that look like? And that becomes the conversation, I think, at this point. Uh, what does the priority need to be? How, how do we get that, uh, that, that help to where it's needed, both in terms of individual Canadians, uh, but also in terms of businesses? Uh, now, the C.D. Howe Institute has established a working group to address some of these challenges. Uh, they've got some some recommendations for what should be government priorities at this point. Joining us uh, to talk more about some of that, uh, very pleased to welcome to the program here, Grant Bishop, Associate uh, Director of Research at the C.D. Howe Institute, cdhowe.org. Grant, thanks so much for joining us here. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me, Rob. Wish could be under better times, but thank you uh, for, for having me. Well, and these truly are unprecedented times. So from, from a public policy challenge, uh, you know, this is unlike, I'm, I'm sure, the conversations that, that you would have uh, most of the time in terms of, you know, policy direction for the country. So in terms then of crafting that kind of emergency sort of economic response on the policy side, how do, how do you come at it? Yeah, I mean, so the, the Institute's a nonpartisan economic policy think tank. Uh, usually we have a lot of lead time for the advice that we give governments. Here we do not. And we've stood up to that end a number of working groups uh, to provide, distill rapid expert advice uh, for governments on the economic response to this public health crisis. Um, and, and this particular working group with published a uh, report, a communique uh, this morning, is one concern with business continuity and trade. We have a number of other uh, groups uh, stood up on household support, monetary and financial measures, as well as broad public health response. Uh, but this one met on Tuesday, and uh, coming out of that, we've distilled a number of uh, key recommendations for immediate action and policy priorities on which government should focus. Right, and I mean it's it's tough to know the the uh, the, the scope of this crisis, right? In terms of what kind of challenges it's it's going to present to us, and uh, you know how much of an economic hit there can be. It's it's an ever evolving situation. So how does that impact you know the 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 crafting of of policy recommendations? Yeah, this is an unprecedented crisis and shutdown of the Canadian economy that is uh, widely felt and previous. Crises within memory don't provide an analogy for the kind of 
uh, economic response that is required. The only analogy is mobilizing for war. Uh, we have, in a matter of days, the last week, effectively shuttered the Canadian economy. And now the government needs to ensure that businesses and families have the cash flow to support them through this as uh, we all shut in uh, and socially distance to prevent the spread of this virus. Um, in, in that, to that end, I mean, no business or household could self-insure against this. Uh, this is now on government, particularly the federal government, given its fiscal capacity to step in and provide direct, resport, direct support with all speed, scope, and scale. And that's what the, uh, the working group emphasized, that government must move uh, with all urgency uh, to provide the support necessary. Uh, it, can't, uh, it can't delay on policy perfection or uh, setting up uh, portals that will be up a, a number of weeks from now and has to channel to businesses and households the necessary cash to get them through the next days and, and weeks. Um, and I can run through some of the recommendations this working yeah. group made for immediate action. Uh, those include the subsidization of wages, effectively preemptive delivery of employment insurance through employers, um, leveraging the existing employment relationships and credit relationships to ensure that there's cash flow to workers and prevent uh, a wave of unemployment and the administrative uh, um, processing time and hold up to get cash through to households through uh, the employment insurance system itself. Uh, we also, to that end, uh, uh, recommended the government backing of lines of credit for businesses through financial institutions to cover wages and fixed costs, recognizing that there's going to be delay in the cash flowing. The most appropriate place for businesses to go is to the financial institutions uh, with whom they have a relationship. And if government says that their credit lines will be guaranteed up to uh, for example, the amount of the wage subsidies, businesses can go to their bank or credit union and get cash uh, uh, within days. Um, additional recommendations that the working group made were the immediate reduction of tariffs on critical imports, particularly those needed to address the hub public health crisis, the, public, the publication of economic data with heightened transparency and frequency. We need to know what's going on and how it's hitting the Canadian economy. And to that end, clear identification of what critical sectors will continue to operate during the public health measures. There's uh, confusion around uh, some of this, and, and that uh, is, is a problem for the businesses that need to deliver, continue to deliver critical supplies. Yeah. Let's talk about that, that uh, idea of the wage subsidy, and, and that's, I think, getting a lot of traction. We're seeing other countries do similar things. Um, so there, there's, there's some logic to it, but in terms of using the employment insurance system, why is that an effective way of doing it? Well, rather, I mean, what we have advocated is using the framework from EI, and, and there's, there's two reasons for this. Uh, you know, if, if employees are shed, they then have to go to EI and go through the administrative uh, process, which is going to be overburdened. Uh, just uh, yesterday, the announcement uh, was that around uh, 930,000 people had applied to EI, had claimed EI in the previous week. That is unprecedented. That, as a share of our labor force, is greater in, in scale and in share than the worst months of the Great Depression. 
Um, the the administration of EI cannot handle that, and therefore uh, the the one logic to preemptively paying through employers EI is to preserve the cash flow to those workers who uh, would otherwise potentially be shed. Uh, and, and that's the the logic for the framework of our proposal to uh, pay the 55% of insurable benefits through employers. And the federal government has the information based on the weekly or biweekly remittances of, of every company uh, that, that pays into the EI system. Uh, the, the federal government will know uh, exactly what their wage bill is as of a week or two weeks ago in order to then channel the equivalent support. Uh, uh, yeah. No, go ahead and finish your thought there. Yeah. No, I mean, we recognize, though, that there is a practical problem uh, in the machinery of government to simply reversing the flow of EI payments. And, and that's where we advocate to couple this with government-backed lines of credit again, leveraging the relationships and uh, credit provision through financial institutions uh, to to supply businesses with the immediate cash they need to supply workers and families with the immediate cash they need. Um, if, if businesses can go to the bank knowing what their wage bill is, being able to calculate what their subsidy is to come within a week or two weeks, um, they they can get the credit they need. I should also say that this is intended to be complementary to what the federal government has announced as the Canada Emergency Response Benefit. Um, th- this is a sub that, that CERB is a, is a subsidy um, for those families that won't be able to access those, those workers who will not be able to access EI. And, and there are quite a few, of course, of those in the, in the so-called gig economy or otherwise contractually employed. Um, but Channeling income to households that way is, is not exclusive, uh, mutually exclusive of ensuring that employment relationships are maintained by subsidizing um, in, in an effective EI-based way uh, wages through employers. So there's there's obviously time involved in in drafting these proposals, implementing these proposals, getting that that support out the door. But um, you know, speed is of the essence too, right? So how how quickly do we need to do this? How quickly could we reasonably do this? Uh, I, w- I think the working group's view and, and our view as the institute is that this is, this is something that needs to be done within days, and certainly the next week. Um, you know, it's commendable what uh, the federal government, what all governments have done, uh, how, how quickly they have rallied. It's a testament to the skill and diligence of the public service and uh, government uh, officials and their staffers. Uh, but we need to deliver this more rapidly than uh, the present federal measures uh, will enable. Uh, the CERB uh, isn't going to be available as a porthole until uh, April 6th, and, and the federal government pledges that, you know, following applications, money would flow 10 days later. That is too late uh, for many workers, certainly too late for many businesses that are making decisions in the next days of, of whether they will lay off employees or not. And businesses face other costs as well for their overhead, for rent, um, yeah. for uh, the, the satisfaction of their, their debt obligations often that are secured. Um, they they are going to look to pull back cash outlays as quick as possible in order to survive through this. And a wage subsidy enables them to retain those workers rather than shed them, makes it 
easier for the economy to restart once we are off these shutdown measures. And that's essential because we are looking at over 60% of our economy in some way being in some way being directly impacted by this. I, I wouldn't want to even stagger a guess at how high unemployment will go in the coming weeks. But we want to stem that, uh, that tide to stop the bleeding, to ideally have employers keep employees in place so that once these measure, measures to uh, prevent the spread of the virus um, are, are eased, we can uh, re-rally our economy. And that will be harder if employees are shed, um, if, if the employment relationships are disrupted. Yeah, that's an important point. I also want to ask you, too, I mean, the uh, Alberta government today was was um, reiterating that that as, as far as they're concerned, uh, agriculture is is an essential service. It's crucial to the, the food supply chain. And, uh, you know, as, as we perhaps begin to tighten some restrictions, that, that that's that's a vital component of the economy. Uh, there's something you, you address, too, in, in this report here that, you know, we, we want to ensure that we don't run into to food shortages or, or anything like that. So, how do we need to come at that? Yeah, thank you for pointing that out, Rob. And, and just uh, for your readers or uh, listeners' notice, uh, they can find the report they, that we're referring to on our website, cdhow.org. Um, indeed, as you mentioned, there was a substantial discussion uh, by the working group around the issues uh, of food security, the risks in particular, um, you know, and, and, and two channels uh, here, well, three, three channels really, um, you know, the, the Canadian uh, food security is going to face pressures from the lack of um, labor availability, both across provinces and through the foreign temporary workers that we admit around 60,000 annually to work in Canadian agriculture with international mobility stalled. Uh, there's great question of whether the farm sector will have adequate labor. Uh, the other part is credit. Um, farms rely on credit and that is going to be constrained in the present environment. The federal government has um, uh, you know, used measures through Farm Credit Canada, but our working group members believe that those would likely be insufficient given uh, that small farmers uh, who comprise the majority of agricultural production um, do not deal directly with Farm Credit Canada, but uh, rather access working capital equipment financing through banks and credit unions. This goes to this point as well of the need for government backing of, of lines of credit to ensure that uh, existing creditor uh, relationships can be leveraged uh, in order to ensure liquidity for businesses. But then the other channel uh, I think also needs to be highlighted is, is so much of our food is imported, uh, particularly um, produce uh, from, from the United States, mm -hmm. and they too are highly reliant on foreign workers uh, for agricultural production. And the restrictions on foreign entry into the United States may inhibit that stateside agricultural output and, and consequently Canada could face scarcity um, of food imports and increased costs for those imports. All right. Much more as mentioned, cdhow.org. Uh, Graham, thanks so much for making some time for us here today. Really appreciate this. Thank you for having me, Rob. Uh, stay home, stay healthy. Yes, you as well, Grant. Thanks again. Uh, that is Grant Bishop, uh, Associate Director of Research at the C.D. Howe Institute, cdhow.org. Uh, so I think they got some pretty uh, practical and impactful 
recommendations here. Uh, so we need to see some movement on this. So the idea of subsidizing wages, I think there, there's an urgent need for that. To do it through the preemptive delivery of employment insurance would be a quick and effective way of doing that. Also to have government backing lines of credit for businesses through financial institutions. Uh, they also say we need an immediate reduction of tariffs on critical imports uh, so that we have what we need. And that could be even for things like medical equipment, ventilators. They say as well, as he talked about, Canada could face potential food shortages without support for the farm credit and mobility of foreign workers for Canada's agriculture sector. So that's got to be a priority. And we played for you a little bit earlier of uh, what Alberta's agriculture minister had to say about that. Right, so that's that question of whether we're doing enough at this point from a public health perspective. Obviously, we've taken some steps, uh, what we're referring to as, as social distancing and self-isolation and quarantine that, that, that we've never had to do before. Right? It's, it's uh, a really unprecedented situation. And we just talked uh, before the bottom of the hour about you know, an economic response to, to help us get through this because uh, it, it is obviously going to have a big impact on the economy with uh, shutting down so much of it. But there's a real urgent public health need to contain the spread of this virus, to, to get it under control, keep it at a manageable level. And we hear those stories coming out of New York about just how overwhelmed the healthcare system is. Uh, and, and it's a warning. I mean, it's a warning we've had already from Italy, from Spain, uh, even from France. Uh, France is seeing a, an increase in both the number of deaths and number of hospitalizations. Uh, that, that that's the reality of this, that it's not just about how many people are going to die, but certainly we're trying to save lives. But it's about how much the healthcare system can cope with. And if we got a healthcare system that's uh, overwhelmed in responding to this, how can it respond to anything else? Right. We put off all kinds of different elective surgeries. So what if you need heart surgery, cancer surgery? Uh, what if you need emergency room care? You have a heart attack or a stroke, right? I mean, so there's some pretty big implications in not getting a handle on this. So back to the question then, are we doing enough? Well, joining us uh, for some thoughts on all of that, I'm very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, uh, Dr. Peter Phillips, an infectious disease specialist, a clinical professor of medicine at the Division of Infectious Diseases at UBC. Dr. Phillips, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thank you. Glad to be on. Um, so obviously we, we've seen um, certainly measures taken across the country, various provinces uh, moving forward and declaring uh, public health emergencies, uh, taking steps to, to um, basically shut down uh, a lot of the economy. But, I mean, are, are we doing enough? And how do we answer that question? Well, I think it's important to look at really the goals of the response to COVID-19. And I think they can be divided into um, two main objectives that are overlapping. But it, it's um, the first part is, is the, the mitigation. Well, given where we are right now, which is an exponential growth. So, so this is, uh, there's been significant community spread going on and in, in the last uh, week or so, uh, and particularly in recent days, we've been seeing the, the doubling of cases, new, or total cases, uh, about every three days. So mm -hmm. this is, has shifted from largely being related to cases that have been linked to travel, either the travelers themselves or contacts of travelers. And in, uh, since about March 24th, it's been 
uh, appreciated that there's been a considerable shift away from travel-related cases being predominant now to those who have been identified to have contracted the infection from others in the community. Uh, And so no um, typical risk group individual has been identified to explain the case. And it's this community spread that's most alarming uh, because it's been... Uh, It's harder to uh, identify by the usual public health measures, testing, case finding, and contact tracing. Mm -hmm. And and so the the two approaches at this point when when one has such uh, rapid spread happening within the community is to do whatever is possible to interrupt the further spread in the community. And that's why we've all been hearing so much from public health in the last um, couple of weeks or so uh, about the physical uh, distancing or social distancing and increasingly staying at home, work from home, don't uh, aggregate in large groups, uh, canceling sports events, concerts, and what have you, uh, just to try to shut this down so that we don't have this continued exponential growth of cases which will fully overwhelm uh, the healthcare system. And so this flattening the curve approach is to try to spread it out and make it happen over a longer period of time so that the extent to which our hospitals are overwhelmed um, is is less. We're still going to be overwhelmed. It's just a matter of how bad that's going to be in terms of um, numbers and access to ventilators, intensive care beds, and so on. So that's the... That's the early part, but the other thing to keep in mind is the the second part, which is the sort of suppression containment part, and that's where all the sort of standard public health initiatives are so important so that we not only spread this out over a longer period of time and make it more manageable, um, but that we reduce the percentage of the population who ultimately becomes infected, which may be anywhere from 10 to 60% by various estimates, and, and that is crucial. Um, so that's really the, I think the, 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 those are the two goals that we need to keep in mind. The, the challenge, though, is, I mean, you know, we, we look at, the, at what's happening right now. We look at, uh, you know, the, the latest number of cases they've announced today, or the latest number of hospitalizations they've announced today. Uh, but we need to be thinking about what that looks like two weeks from now. And I guess the other side of it, too, is, though, we don't yet know the the true effectiveness of all of these measures we've implemented and we'll probably have a better idea of that next week and into the week after so i mean how how do we make those decisions when we're not in that sense operating in real time well we really need to um, look at the experience from other regions and also the the modeling studies most recently imperial college in in uh, in the uk uh, published on March 16th, a modeling study, and they, they've certainly identified the sort of physical or social distancing and the uh, more uh, sort of widespread application of that into the community with closures of uh, businesses and schools and so on. Uh, and at that one end of the spectrum of those sort of measures is full lockdown. So that's been certainly identified as, as a very important way to address the transmission right now. It's been demonstrated in model studies and it's been shown in, um, it certainly has been shown in China. Um, and so we, we really need to look at the experience of 
two places that have had uh, large outbreaks and have successfully brought it under control. Now, it's still early days, and the ultimate success of that is the controls put in place or the, the, some of them, in, say, in China, have been considered draconian. Uh, but Korea has also had an outbreak that is up around 90,000 cases, mm-hmm. and their epidemic curve has come right down. So in, a, in terms of which democratic countries have brought this under control, Korea is our only example. Uh, China's done it, Korea's done it, and I, I really think that the, the focus is for sure mitigation, flatten this curve, slow this thing down for the time being. But we need to adopt what Korea's done uh, quite successfully in terms of not just um, spreading this over months and months and, and still ultimately ending up with uh, a big percentage of the population being infected that might be 10% or considerably higher. Uh, And just to look at the success, uh, one has to keep in mind that the, although there were nearly 10,000 cases in Korea with their 50 million population, they've kept it so far to way below 1% of of their population becoming infected. It's something like 0.0002%. And uh, that is really, uh, I would view as the gold standard of approach, and we should be aiming for that. Now, they've done it with very um, aggressive diagnostic uh, testing, case finding, and some um, extremely comprehensive um, strategies applied to um, contact tracing to really track these cases down in the community and, and try to stamp this out as much as possible. Now, they, they're still having some new cases, but South Korea is, uh, just uh, in the last 24 hours has had 104 new cases. Well, how many have we had? 488. So yeah. this is achievable, and the, uh, although for sure all of the, probably every country in the world eventually is going to have this problem, but throughout Europe, and North America, we're seeing exponential growth, and I think we really need to take the lessons from uh, South Korea. Taiwan actually never got into exponential growth because they had such a comprehensive strategy from the beginning that they're still looking at very low numbers. Uh, they're not in the same problem that we are. They, in the last 24 hours, Taiwan had 17 new cases, and, and that uh, Taiwan was predicted to be the second highest um, location for exported cases coming out of China in the, uh, in the early part of this epidemic. Canada was pegged as, as 14th in terms of um, uh, down the list for the most likely exported cases. And here we are sitting at uh, uh, some 3,800 cases, uh, whereas Taiwan sitting at 252. So yep. there are measures that can be uh, adopted and uh, I, my main concern right now is that I really uh, I don't think that the public health system in our country has been funded to the level that's necessary in order to try to replicate what's been done in um, in Korea or, or Taiwan for that matter. And they, they hear um, numerous stories coming out. Um, uh, I hear them from uh, various people. I see it in the media uh, about the public health staff struggling to try to keep up with the workload, and it's just very difficult. I really think that probably um, 
a large uh, number of um, individuals need to be recruited. And although there, there's been uh, a promise of uh, within the $1 billion package, uh, $500 million in the last, this is an announcement a week or so ago, uh, so within that $1 billion, $500 million were directed towards health care, hospital resources, and so on. Um, $100 million was was targeted for public health, including surveillance and support for the National Microbiology Laboratory in Winnipeg. But I, I don't see anything there for people to actually supervise and, and um, run the, uh, the quarantine program um, or do all of the public health work that is, has an increasing uh, sort of caseload by the day. So there's so much work there that needs to be done in public health. I think that the, the people in public health are working uh, very hard, but uh, I, I don't think they're getting adequately supported from the federal government. Uh, Canada has done a lot of testing, but but in order to to move to a more comprehensive, not just testing, but testing and tracing regime, what what needs to shift or what needs to change? Well, the, thankfully, the, the microbiology community across the country has done a great job in, in scaling up testing, and we're uh, in a much better situation than we were a, a week or two ago. And as you've heard, uh, we, we were. Even going back um, many weeks, we've, we're in a much better situation than our neighbors to the south um, who had difficulty with uh, initial tests uh, that came from CDC that was not working uh, adequately. And then there were FDA regulations that actually slowed the um, ability of um, various laboratories across the country developing their own um, tests. And so they also have are getting to the point of being scaled up, but it, it's taken them longer, and they're fur, further into their epidemic. So um, that's been a big obstacle. But, but I, I really see that the testing access in this country is likely going to change, um, and hopefully very soon. And these restrictions on testing and the sort of rationing that's been present um, will hopefully uh, become uh, less and less uh, in a very short period of time. Because if we don't have the testing in the community, it's, it's really difficult to get uh, adequate uh, compression or containment, rather, um, or suppression of, of uh, ongoing community transmission. If one has to rely on just taking people who might be infected, like the traveler who's come back from an area of risk, which mm-hmm. is increasingly so many different pla- places in the world, and during that 14 days, they develop mild symptoms, at least in, in the last while, uh, those individuals are not making uh, the cut in terms of uh, being considered um, uh, requiring testing uh, because the testing has not been available enough to include them. And so the priority has been for um, those who are at greater likelihood of actually being infected. And as a result, one ends up with people who might have mild symptoms. If they have uh, severe illness and they need to be hospitalized, they're certainly going to get tested. But the mild ones who are in the community are on self-isolation. Um, yes, they've, they may be self-isolating, and although initially we, we didn't know that they were going to be uh, included in the contact tracing protocols, 
uh, and that's been changed now. So apparently they will be, um, they'll be designated as a clinical case, but not confirmed by laboratory testing. And so the, the contact tracing would kick in for them. But the, the success rate with uh, compliance with self-isolation and so on, and, uh, and even the ability to do the contact tracing, which uh, I'm concerned about because I don't think they're adequately staffed necessarily to do all of this currently, the, if you don't have a positive test, then there's more likely to be breaches of the, of the quarantine or the isolation period, right. and the, the close contacts may be more likely to breach their, their quarantine. If, but if they know there's a positive test, it's going to motivate people to, to do what's needed. Absolutely. Well, we've got to leave it there. Dr. Phillips, appreciate your insight on all of this, and uh, thanks so much for making some time for us here today. Okay. Thank you. All the best to you, sir. Uh, there you go. So some perspective uh, from Dr. Uh, Peter Phillips, infectious disease specialist, uh, clinical professor of medicine, the Division of Infectious Diseases at UBC, uh, on what we're doing uh, right, but what we need to do more of. So he, in, in his view, the priorities need to be mandatory supervised quarantine where that's required. we got to scale up testing and engage in aggressive contact tracing. So the strategy right now, as he says, is to flatten the curve. We played a little bit of this earlier, Alberta's agriculture minister making it clear today that as far as the Alberta government is concerned, agriculture is and will be considered an essential service if we get to a situation where non-essential businesses are being forced to close. Uh, it's obviously a crucial part of the uh, food supply chain. I want to talk a bit more uh, about how they're sustaining things through all of this. Joining us on the line here this afternoon, uh, we have with us uh, Rich Smith, who is executive director with Alberta Beef Producers. Uh, Rich, great to have you with us here today. Welcome to the program. Uh, thank you very much. It's good to be here. Uh, so first of all, if you can, give us a bit of an overview just as, you know, what's what the last couple of weeks have been like for the industry and what kind of an impact this has had so far. Well, like everybody else around the world, really, we've uh, felt significant impacts from the uh, COVID-19 pandemic. Certainly our industry, we've been working hard through our national organization, the Canadian Cattlemen's Association, working with them, our other industry partners and stakeholders with the federal and provincial governments, really trying to ensure that uh, we continue with stable beef production and trade during this pandemic so that we can continue to provide um, safe and high-quality beef to Canadians and our customers. Yeah, what, what about on the export side? Uh, how's, how's that been impacted? Well, so far, the, fortunately, the borders have remained open, and we have, we have been able to continue to trade beef and cattle with the United States, our most important trading partners. So, And that's one of the things we're, we're really looking to do is try to ensure that um, the borders stay open, cattle, beef, and the supplies that we need to produce cattle and beef can keep moving across borders. Uh, in terms of here at home and, and ensuring that we keep that uh, food supply chain uh, secure and, and functioning, uh, what, what's your position? I guess the Alberta government has made it clear that, that agriculture is to be considered an essential service. I, I guess you would certainly concur with that. We certainly agree with that. We're, we've been asking governments across the country, and, and and we're looking for consistency in the provinces and how they designate agriculture and food 
as essential services, and we, we think it needs to extend right through the whole supply chain. Obviously, if, if the food is essential, then the people who produce the food must be able to do it, and we need the supplies and services that are necessary to do it. So so we commend the governments for taking those steps, and it, it just helps our industry to maintain access to the people and the supplies and, and the movement that we need in order to continue to provide the food. Uh, in terms of people uh, keeping people working and 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 keeping those those um, you know those conditions safe, um, where, where are things at on that side of it? Well, uh, we've all worked together and, and we've pro- produced a series of uh, management practices and guidelines for farmers and ranchers to use to try and keep people and as safe as possible on their operations. So we're providing guidance on that. We're we're you know respecting what's being said by the health authorities, um, but that is one of the elements of, of being an essential service is that, you know, we need, if people are able to work, we, we hope to keep them them working. So our, our priorities obviously are maintaining the health of the agriculture community, but we also want to um, do our part in stopping the spread of COVID, but then we need to support the continuation of our businesses and maintaining the beef supplies. How much of an impact has it been? What what, what seems like a, a shift, bit of a shift, because obviously there, there's less product uh, going to restaurants right now. Probably more demand in in supermarkets right now, and and that may swing back the other way at at some point down the road. But does that impact uh, beef producers at all? Well, certainly the the demand for beef has remained strong, and as you described, the shift has come. Uh, there's much less beef going into the restaurant and food service trade, but the retail demand has been extremely strong. So, yeah. the processors have been working hard and, and looking to do perhaps some extra work to produce more beef to to meet with that demand. The cattle markets, um, basically, I think, in response to just the overall crisis took a big dip in terms of cattle prices at the beginning of the month, but those are starting to recover now because I think the demand for beef is working its way back to, um, you know, increasing prices for cattle. So so certainly the, the demand for beef has stayed strong. I think people, many people may be trying to make sure they have enough supplies of, of beef uh, for, for a long period of time. So the demand stayed strong. And so that part of the um, supply chain is is actually functioning relatively well. We're hoping to keep it going, but um, you know, we're the processors are working to produce beef, and of course, the producers are working to supply cattle to them. All right, uh, and uh, you're, you're remaining, I would imagine, then in close contact uh, with the Alberta government, with the Department of Agriculture, making sure that that's you know, there's there's coordination on all of this. Absolutely. We're, our, our national counterparts are working with the federal government, and we, we have been in, in very close consultation with the Alberta government. So we appreciate the, you know, the concern they've shown for our industry and when they're obviously re- representing, you know, being concerned about all the citizens of the province. But I, we appreciate their recognition of the, the essential nature of, of providing food for people. All right, much more at albertabeef.org. Thanks so much for making some time for us here this afternoon, Rich. Appreciate it. You're very welcome. Thanks for your interest in in having me on. All right, all the best. Take care. Uh, There you go. That's uh, Rich Smith. He is executive director with Alberta Beef Producers. And so, you know, just talking about keeping those uh, supply chains operating, and there still has been uh, a steady demand for beef, although a lot of it's shifted, as he mentioned, uh, from restaurant and food service to, to the supermarket, the retail side of things. 
Um, but the Alberta government making it pretty clear, look, we consider to agriculture to be an essential service uh, to make sure people have the food that they need. And, of course, part of what the government's doing is to ensure that that's, you know, in, in a broader sense, that the people have the support that they need um, so that we can continue buying these products that, that we need. So the closure of the Canada-U.S. border, at least closure to non-essential traffic, is uh, is pretty uh, unprecedented. And, you know, we, we sort of take for granted that uh, this is a border that both Canadians and Americans uh, can cross fairly easily. I mean, 9-11 had some, some impact on, on that for sure, and the requirement of a passport, and obviously some border crossings can be busier than others, but uh, we're in kind of uncharted territory here. So hopefully we can keep the supply chain uh, intact, and, and obviously exceptions are being made for those who are, are transporting uh, goods and products uh, across the border. Uh, but for everybody else, um, it means stay put. Now, for Canadians, for now, it's probably not a big deal. Not a lot of people, I think, looking to, to vacation at this point. Canadians are still able to get home if they're in the U.S. Um, but this has an impact uh, on, on certain communities, and, and it's going to impact communities in, in different ways. There are a lot of border communities uh, that, that are going to have to adjust to this, this new reality. But one community in particular is, is really affected by this. And we had a conversation recently about Point Roberts, Washington. There was some conversation uh, about whether... It was worth exploring the idea of maybe joining Canada. I mean, geographically, Point Roberts seems like it, it ought to be a part of Canada, but it isn't. Point Roberts is a part of Washington State, even though for all intents and purposes, it's cut off from the rest of Washington State. And now that the border is closed, it's a community that's, that's basically now isolated. And what impact is that having on the folks who live there? Well, joining us on the line uh, is uh, one of those folks uh, who lives in Point Roberts, uh, Washington. Hugh Wilson uh, is a realtor in the community and joins us on the line here this afternoon. Uh, Hugh, thanks so much for making some time for us here. Welcome to the program. Oh, I'm very happy to talk to you. Well, I appreciate you making some time for us here. So, like I say, I want to get an understanding now of the, the impact this has on, on the lives of folks living there because, you know, whether it's shopping or appointments, there, there are a lot of reasons why there's, there's a need to cross that border. There's a ton of reasons to cross the border. Uh, to go see my doctor, I have to go through Canada and down into Bellingham, although we do have a small clinic here. Uh, they're not seeing people right now due to social distancing. Mm-hmm. So uh, shopping is, we have one supermarket here, and they're pretty well stocked. But as soon as uh, it became clear that we had toilet paper down here, the Canadians came down and cleaned it out. Oh, wow. Yeah. So this is a really small community, and uh, social distancing isn't too hard because uh, I'm surrounded by trees. It's it's very beautiful. I mean, our community is so small. You don't lose your girlfriend, you lose your turn. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just trying to put a little light on the situation. We have... So many reasons. Most of us here have a reason to be in Point Roberts. We uh, have relatives in Vancouver. Yeah. Uh, and now we can't go see them uh, because of uh, the quarantine. And if you come down to get gas and go back, they ask you to self-quarantine as a Canadian. So it's gotten very, very quiet. Yeah, how many people live in, in Point Roberts? Well, we have a full-time population of 1,300 uh, a lot of people have 
other homes elsewhere. We're a secondary base. Mm-hmm. So in the summertime, when everybody comes down to open up their cabins, we have about 5,000 people here. Okay. Five square miles. Yeah. Uh, in terms of, of um, the, the medical system, I mean, is, is there a hospital in Point Roberts, or, or what, is, what is there? We have a fire department, which is mainly staffed with volunteers that come from Canada to learn their craft and take it back. So uh, we don't have a hospital. We have a small clinic that uh, checks on wellness, and then they... If somebody has to go to the hospital, it is either by ambulance from here or they do a medivac uh, airline uh, helicopter comes in and gets us. So if there is an emergency situation, okay, so there would be some provisions in place. But, um, I mean, has has that happened yet? Has there been any situation that you're aware of? uh, Medivac, you mean? Yeah. Yes, oh, several times, um, and and they're they're extremely efficient. Our fire department is extremely efficient, and they stabilize people and then medivac them out. It's happened many times a year. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, in the last uh, week or so, have, have the there been any? So, yeah. No, nothing. Okay. No. And as far as I know, we don't have any uh, COVID viruses here. Well, and I suppose in a way, I mean, you're you're, you're kind of protected in that sense. Uh, so, so maybe there's 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 that to be said for the situation. Uh, what about uh, grocery stores and, and being able to ensure that that you have what you need, both in terms of uh, food you got to eat every day and, and other supplies, like you say, toilet paper, paper towels, that kind of stuff. We have the one grocery store. They're going to be cutting back on our selection because we don't have the regular traffic coming through from Canada. Um, but other than that, they're fairly well stocked. I mean, a lot of fresh fruit, a lot of fresh vegetables, and of course, all the other staples. Except yeah, for well, uh, we do run out of toilet paper. <laughs> right? Yeah, it seems to be a problem everywhere these days. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. So I guess at this point, then, if if it's non-essential, if the, the travel is considered non-essential, are, are there any exceptions? If you needed to get to to Bellingham for a medical appointment, or if you needed to pick up prescriptions, uh, you, even in in BC, are there any exceptions being made, or what are people running into if they try to cross the border? They will let you cross the border to get down to, for example, Blaine, Washington, to pick up a prescription. If you're a, a medical person, you can cross the border. Uh, I'm a dual citizen, so technically I can cross the border, but we are all respecting the essential services only um, quarantine. So we we are trying to respect the fact that we are in a, in a situation here. Right. So I guess if you made the decision to go into BC, um, and as as then a, as a dual citizen, you could, but you would then be basically expected to go straight into to quarantine for two weeks. Exactly. But as long as I'm in transit, I can pass through Canada. But I have to have a good reason. And and not allowed to stop, basically. Exactly. Exactly. So I I wouldn't be allowed to stop to buy a lottery ticket, for example. You know. Um, what's your situation in Calgary? Is it, uh, are you getting a lot of new cases? Um, yeah, we, we are. Uh, I think we saw, I believe it was, uh, somewhere around 61 new cases yesterday. 
Um, so yeah, I mean, in, in Calgary, obviously we, we get a lot of international flights. So, um, you know, here in Alberta, we're, we're kind of the, the main spot for, you know, I think it's about 60% of the cases in Alberta are, are here in Calgary. So I, I think we're expecting, uh, maybe in the coming days, maybe some, some further restrictions on, um, on businesses and, and gatherings, but, um, yeah, it's, I'm working from home. Uh, things are, are pretty quiet here. Folks are, are staying home for the most part. Well, we're surrounded by water. We can still leave by boat. We have a great marina here. We can leave by boat and go straight to Blaine uh, if we needed something. Mm -hmm. We have great parks. We have great beaches. So it's actually quite a tranquil place to be quarantined. (laughs) Well, tranquility is, uh, I think, a lot to be said for that right now. So. Yeah, well, glad to hear folks are, are well down there uh, under these unusual circumstances. And, uh, Hugh, I appreciate making some time for us here today. It was good chatting with you. Okay, very good. Have a good day. All the best to you, sir. Take care. All right, there you go. That's uh, Hugh Wilson, uh, one of the 1,300 or so folks who live in uh, Point Roberts, Washington, uh, which, uh, yeah, you look it up on the map, it would, would probably surprise you that, wait, that's part of the United States? Uh, and, and it's, you know, it's the way they, they chose to, to draw the border at the time. And, uh, look, when the border's functioning normally, it's, you know, you, you, you can live with that. And it's relatively straightforward for folks uh, from Point Roberts just to drive up into Tawasson or further up and, and go get groceries. Or, you know, the, a lot of them have doctors there, uh, pick up uh, prescriptions or, you know, just make that quick drive up into, uh, into B.C. and then back down around down and back into to Washington. But. Uh, things are not normal at the border, and so that's uh, certainly meant some, some big changes for folks in Point Roberts, basically leaving them stranded in this community. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter, at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770CHQR.com. Talk to you next time. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.